You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. As Dave said, uh, notice the chalkboards around here. Um, those were up last week. If you weren't here, what they are is there. We had the opportunity to write things down that maybe we're relying on ourselves too much for, or that we're taking credit for instead of giving God the credit. Uh, some of the examples of things that were written up on these boards um, were things like this: people pleasing, restoring my marriage, next year's assignment, purity, my job. All real practical things that people are really wanting to give God the credit for and give him the trust for. One of the things that I wrote up on the board was parenting. This, for me, is a source of pride and insecurity, things that we talked about in our service last week that Jay focused on um, with Daniel chapter 4. Really, one of the things that he said is that insecurity is just another side of pride, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but there has been a quite a few a time, quite a few times in parenting that I kind of think I haven't figured out, or that I kind of think I discovered some new technique or some new parenting method that is is going to work. It's going to turn my kids into little followers of Jesus. Uh, pretty quickly, that's usually um, proven to be wrong. Just this last week, in fact, um, situation happened with one of our kids. Uh, they were really just struggling kind of consistently after school with basically temper tantrums. Um, and it was, this was going on kind of consistently. And one day when I came home from work, I had a long talk with, uh, with this child of mine. And I thought, it was, I thought it was a good talk. I thought it went really well. Um, I went and talked to Stacy about it and told her about it and thought, okay, I think we got that taken care of maybe, or I think we'll see some good progress. Well, the very next day, uh, there was another major tantrum, even worse than before. Super discouraging. For those of you who are parents or who have been parents, you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's discouraging, and at the same time, it can be a source of pride when we think we've got it figured out, and then very quickly we find out we don't. Thankfully, the rest of the week has gone better, but... Uh, I've been thinking a lot this week about pride and humility as a result of these chalkboards and the worship service together last week. Um, Pride and humility as it relates to parenting, as it relates to my marriage, as it relates to my job and all sorts of things. And this morning, we're going to continue to think about these topics, about pride and humility. We're moving to chapter 5 of of Daniel this morning, building on what Jay talked about last week in chapter 4. Remember last week we learned about how Nebuchadnezzar, this mighty king of Babylon, had been given power, had been given this this place of prominence as the king of Babylon. But God humbled his pride. He caused him to lose his sanity. He became like a wild beast. He ate grass and his fingernails grew out like claws. And he was like this for a long time until he eventually acknowledged God and acknowledged that God is king And he praised the Lord, and when he did, his sanity was restored, and then his kingdom was restored. The chapter, chapter 4, ended with this announcement from Nebuchadnezzar. He said, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right, 
and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And then we transition into chapter 5 that we're going to look at today, and it's more of the same. We see another lesson of God humbling the, pr- the proud. This is about a king. Our, our chapter today is about another king, a king named Bel- Belshazzar. And like Nebuchadnezzar, God is going to humble his pride. But really, the story is going to end in a very different way than it ended with Nebuchadnezzar. So before we dive in, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you've revealed yourself to us. We thank you for the way that you want to change our hearts. We do pray that by your Holy Spirit we would receive your correction and that we would be encouraged in you too. Set our minds on you and guide us over these next few minutes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and jump in and just start reading in the beginning of chapter 5. This is Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. It says this, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This just kind of jumps into this story about Belshazzar, doesn't it? At the beginning of the chapter, we don't know any background information On who Belshazzar is, we don't know about the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign as king. It's just all of a sudden there's this new king in Babylon. Um, A lot of things happened between these two chapters, we know from history, but the the author doesn't include any of that. None of that's important to our story. This was just a quick appearance by this this guy Belshazzar, and in fact, it it the story starts his story, chapter five, with the last day, really the last night of his reign. At the end of this chapter. His life and his story ends just as abruptly as it started. He dies and another king takes over the kingdom. This chapter 5 that we're looking at today is Belshazzar's moment in the spotlight. And it's not a glorious moment at, at all. He's having this party. There's wine, there's women, there's worship. And it's all combining for a really bad scenario. But at the heart of this problem, of this uh, banquet, this party, the real problem is sin, uh, is the sin of pride. There's obviously sin going on. Um, there's drunkenness and debauchery, but pride is really the problem. He commands his people to bring in these goblets that were taken from Jerusalem. These are goblets that were used to worship Yahweh, the one true God, and he uses those to worship these false gods of Babylon. He's mocking God. The problem wasn't with the, the partying, um, though that was certainly a problem. The main problem was this arrogant, blasphemous idolatry that Belshazzar and the Babylonians are engaged in. I don't think it's an accident that the gods that are described here are listed in the order that they are. Listen to this. It says that they're gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron. Does anyone recognize that order of materials, that sequence? I see a couple nods. That's the same exact order of the materials in chapter 2 in that statue 
that was in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that statue that represented all the kingdoms, all the nations of the earth that would one day be crushed by the kingdom of God, the everlasting kingdom of the mighty one and only true God. This has been a major theme all throughout Daniel. All kingdoms and all kings fall before God Most High. The Lord humbled Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, and in the very same way, he's going to humble Belshazzar in chapter 5, though with different results, with a different outcome. Let's continue in verse 9, uh, verse 5 through 9. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a, chain, a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. King Belshazzar sees this finger. I can't can't even imagine what this would have been like, writing on the wall. And his response is to turn pale. He turns ghostly white. His knees knock together, and he loses total control of the lower half of his body, or he loses something of the lower half of his body. This, it, it's interesting that the literal translation here for this, uh, this verse is that the knots of his loins were made loose. I'm not going to go into detail and describe what that might mean. You guys, are, you guys are smart and can probably figure it out. But what we can say for sure is that here is this king who just a minute ago was arrogantly mocking God. And now he's a total mess. He was utterly terrified, so, so fearful and afraid that he lost control of himself, psychologically and physiologically. We're seeing again that what it said at the end of chapter 4, God is able to humble those who walk in pride. He's doing that with Belshazzar. And then so what does he do? He brings in all these so-called wise men, these enchanters, astrologers, and diviners, And none of them have any idea how to interpret the the riddle, the writing on the wall. Belshazzar's terrifying situation here was a result of pride and idolatry. And he responds by seeking answers in all the wrong places. He turns for help to the things that were really the root of the problem to begin with. To these ministers of the false gods. And this only makes the problem worse. His knees shake more, he turns more pale, he's more scared, and the nobles are baffled, it says. It never works to try to fix a situation by going further into the sin that caused the situation in the first place. I think we all tend to do that. There's ways that we don't necessarily seek enchanters or or diviners, um, but we turn to the sin that caused our problem to try to fix the sin. Examples are, um, I think the first one that comes to mind is lying. We often tell lies to cover up lies. Or maybe it's not outright lies, but we twist the truth just a little bit, and then we're about to get found out, or there's some sort of consequence that's coming because of that. 
So we have to just twist it just a little bit more to try to fix the problem that the first lie caused. Or what about gossip or, or speaking unkindly to someone, to a, a classmate or a colleague or a family member? This can happen in face-to-face conversations, and it certainly can happen online in social media. I think we see this all the time. I saw it just this last week with some public figures, nobody that I know personally. Um, there, one person made some critical comments about another person's ideas, and uh, the person responded defensively, and just immediately this thing escalated. And so they're both firing back and forth these very personal attacks and accusations, all just to try to kind of prove the earlier points that they were making. It just it gets out of control. And these, these are two people who are doing important work for God's kingdom. Um, but in the end, this just turned into a really ugly and very public interchange between the two of them that really didn't accomplish anything other than damage their gospel witness. This is how conflict works. This is how words can work. It escalates so quickly. So many times we say something that's out of line, and then we get hurt by the response, so we say something even worse, even more sinful. And it just grows. It just builds on itself. I think as it relates to speaking sinfully, and as it relates to all kinds of things, we need to resist the temptation to try fixing our problems that were caused by sin by sinning more. It's just not worth it. It doesn't do any good, and it doesn't please the Lord. This is one thing that we learned from this story. So the, the next thing that happens is that the queen runs in. She's heard all this commotion, um, all, all the fear that's going on, whatever, whatever she heard. She runs in, and she, she says, King, don't worry about it. Belshazzar, calm down. I've got, I've got an answer. And in verse 11, she says this. She says, There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. Daniel had a reputation at this point. The queen, who is probably the queen mother, probably Nebuchadnezzar's wife, she knew about Daniel from before. She knew about all the ways that he was gifted. Um, He's known for his wisdom. He has this reputation. I think this is an excellent example for us about how to live for God in a hostile world and how to do it with humility. We're called to be salt and light, to live so that others can see and so others can give glory to God. It's good if people recognize our abilities or the good things that we do, but it's not enough if they just kind of have some vague impression of some, you know, mystical quality about us. Daniel makes it very clear repeatedly throughout the book of Daniel that his ability, his skill, his wisdom comes from the one true God. And I think like Daniel, we can do this too. We can talk about God. We can point to him and give him the credit for for our skill and our success, not leaving any question about where our abilities come from. The king calls Daniel in, 
The king, interestingly here, he makes sure to remind him that he's one of the exiles. Here's the king terrified in a, in a mess on the floor because of his fear, but he's still prideful enough to point out, hey, Daniel, you're one of those exiles. You're just, you're just a prisoner in my land. And then he says to him, he says, if you can interpret this writing that all of my so-called wise men couldn't interpret, interpret, then I'll clothe you in a royal purple robe. I'll give you a gold necklace, and I'll make you the third ruler in the land. To which Daniel replies, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. What we see here is this stark contrast between the pride of the king, Belshazzar, and the humility of Daniel. Daniel has an outstanding reputation, and it's well-earned. People know about his wisdom and his knowledge and his abilities, but he's not seeking accolades or rewards for himself. That would really fly in the face of everything that we're learning in Daniel about God exalting the humble and bringing down the, pr- the prideful. Daniel refuses the reward, and even though later the king gives it to him and uh, kind of forces him to take it, Daniel here re- rejects the reward And it shows us that humble faithfulness doesn't seek recognition. It doesn't seek reward. Daniel's example encourages us to be humble and to give glory to God even when, and especially when, people praise you for something you've done. I know this is hard. This goes against who we are. Pride is deep in our hearts and it runs so deep within us that even when we're acting in humility, Even when we do something that's sacrificial, I think the temptation is to seek recognition for that, to try to get praise for ourselves for this. One way that I've heard it described is that humility demands secrecy. If it's real humility, often no one will even know that we're being humble. Often it's just going to go unnoticed. My wife, who's here in this service, she's amazing. And I don't mind giving her public recognition for that. She's not seeking it, but uh, it's true. She's amazing. She does unbelievable things, miraculous feats of strength and virtue every day to take care of me, to take care of our kids, to take care of our home. And every once in a while, every now and then, I wash the dishes or I do something around the house that, uh, without her knowing about it sometimes, But my tendency, the thing that I've realized is that when I do that, I give myself a pat on the back. I always tend to think of of myself as doing something awesome or being a good husband in that moment. And uh, and sometimes, often, I think of ways to kind of manipulate the situation and give subtle little hints to make sure she knows what I did, make sure she recognizes it, make sure she gives me praise and thanks for it. Uh, it tells me what a wonderful husband I am. I mean, this is the reality. This is, I think, this is how we're all wired to, to be. So many times we do something kind or gracious or humble, and then we make sure we try to get credit for it. But if we're really doing things out of humble love, if I'm really doing the dishes because I want to make Stacy's wife life a little bit easier, take, give her a little bit of a break, I, don't, I shouldn't need to have recognition for it. Sometimes we will get recognized. We will have a reputation for our achievements like Daniel did. But I think the point here is that he wasn't seeking that. He was always seeking to give credit to God, to give him the praise. 
Again, getting recognition isn't a bad thing. It's, it's, a, it's a matter of motive. It's a matter of where, what our goal is. Are we trying to seek our own recognition or are we trying to glorify God? So, after hearing, hearing about his reputation, the king calls Daniel in. He brings him in. He says, I'll give you the rewards if you can interpret it. But Daniel says, nope, keep the rewards to yourself, but I will tell you what this writing means. But before giving the interpretation, Daniel keeps him in suspense. Daniel makes him wait. He knows he has a captive audience. He knows that when somebody is waiting for a specific answer for something, they're going to listen to what you're saying. I think of examples like the, uh, uh, a graduation speech. So you've got all these students or graduates that just want to walk across the stage and get their diploma. Um, sometimes that speech that's given at a graduation can be a really powerful moment where, where those students are really listening. Um, or a wedding where the, the, the groom, he just wants to hear man and wife, you can kiss the bride. But uh, the pastor makes him wait. He's got to hear the sermon first. And a lot of times, I think, those can be very powerful sermons. Or what if right now, or sometime in this, if right now I told you that sometime during this sermon I was going to tell you who the Ducks are going to be playing in the Final Four next weekend. Ducks fans are happy this morning. I heard that clap over here. It was fun having Jay in the sermon this morning, in the, in the service first hour, because he's, uh, as you know, a big Ducks fan. And he, was, he had a grin from ear to ear after last night's game. But if I told you Sometime in this ser- sermon, I will tell you who they're going to be playing, whether it's du- or Kentucky or North Carolina. Um, you'd probably listen. You might be more inclined to pay attention if you were waiting to hear that information. I think that's just how it works, and that's what Daniel takes advantage of here. He knows he has the king's full attention because he wants to hear the interpretation, but he delays. He waits. He makes him uh, sit in suspense before he tells him what the writing on the wall means. Verse 18, Daniel starts this speech. Instead of going right to the interpretation, he starts by saying this. He says, Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. He's going to go back and give Belshazzar a little history lesson and retell the story of chapter 4. Daniel makes it very clear here that Nebuchadnezzar only had his power because God gave it to him. He reminds him of this point. This is the point that's emphasized over and over in Daniel. All authority is given by God. But then Daniel reminds Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's heart became proud. So God brought him down from the throne, stripped him of his power, uh, made him into a madman to live like a beast in the wilderness, until he acknowledged that God Most High is the king over all. So he gives him this little... It gives Belshazzar this little history lesson about his predecessor. And then he turns the focus directly to Belshazzar himself. And this is what he says in verses 22 and 23. This is really the heart of the passage. He says, But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in 
his hand, your life, and all your ways. This is a really scathing rebuke that he gives to Belshazzar. Daniel makes a point to say, this is about you, Belshazzar. Some 14 times in just these two verses, 22 and 23, the word you or your shows up. It's like he's looking at him right in his white face, um, and he's addressing him very directly, maybe putting his finger right on his chest. And he's saying, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You have worshipped these false gods, and you did not honor the one true God who holds your life in his hands. Again, the lesson here is that God will ultimately demolish human arrogance. As it says in James chapter 4, God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. We're seeing this over and over in these chapters in Daniel. Then there's a lot of things that we could talk about, that we could learn about pride from this passage. But the one thing that I want to focus on for a few minutes here that I think really is relevant to us and is really one of the keys to this story is that at the very heart of pride is idolatry. Pride, in essence, is redirecting our worship away from God and onto something else. We see this all through the Bible. We see it starting at the very first sin in the Garden of Eden, where the serpent tempts Eve with pride. He tells her, if you eat this fruit that God told you not to eat, you and Adam, you'll be like God. Pride is an attempt to remove God from his place as Lord and King of all and replace him with myself or with whatever other object that I'm worshiping instead of him. It's not something to be taken lightly, pride. It's not just some other sin amongst a lot of sins. C.S. Lewis says this about pride. He calls it the essential vice, the utmost evil. He says, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It's the root of all sin. And this is why we see all throughout Scripture that God doesn't put up with pride. It's a big deal to him. It always loses. God's kingdom always prevails against arrogance and pride. And I think for us today, this should really hit us hard. Uh, For the things that we're relying on for ourselves for the things that we're trying to take credit for, that's taking worship away from God. Those things that you wrote on the chalkboard, or if you didn't write anything on the chalkboard, the things that you um, are insecure about, which again, it's the other side of pride, um, those are things that take worship away from God. Those are the things that we need to surrender to God, to ascribe the glory due to his name and to worship him and rely on him instead of ourselves. Again, when I think about parenting, for me, my pride and insecurity, if I think about that as directing my worship away from God, that's a big deal. That's something that I don't want to take lightly. As Jay McKinney said, I don't want to eat grass because of that. What about you? What did you write on the board? What, what are the areas in your life that you're seeking to take credit for instead of giving credit to God? Or you're relying on yourself and you're fearful and insecure because it's all on your shoulders. You're not worshiping God as God. Humbly surrendering those things to the Lord redirects our worship back to him where it's supposed to be. And I know this is very difficult. I know because I've experienced the difficulty all the time. It's hard to be humble. 
It's not just enough to know that pride is redirecting my worship. I understand that. But it's still hard for me to do that. And that's, I think, another point that this passage is making is that growing is more than knowing. Again, it's not just about having the right information. That's not ultimately going to change us. We need more than that, more than just information, more than just knowledge, to learn the kinds of lessons that will result in a heart change and a change in character and behavior and make us more like Christ. Daniel drives this point home really strongly with Belshazzar. He says, after, after telling him all, reminding him all about Nebuchadnezzar, he says, you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Belshazzar knew about his father. He knew the right thing to do. He knew the problems with pride. But he still exalted himself and sinned against God. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar had had multiple chances uh, to repent, and eventually he did. As Jay said last week, grace, God's grace always is preceded by, or always precedes his judgment. Um, and we saw that that was true with Nebuchadnezzar. He had plenty of chances, and eventually uh, he fell because of his pride, but then he was restored. Well, Belshazzar also had lots of chances because he knew all about his father. Um, it's a different story. It ends with Belshazzar being, being killed um, and defeated, and his kingdom coming to an end at, at the end. But he's being held accountable for what he knew about God. But he didn't change. He didn't see the writing on the wall figuratively before he had to see that writing on the wall literally. And I think that's really one of the worst problems about pride. By its very nature, pride makes it extremely difficult to admit when we're wrong and to change and turn from our sins. How many times when we're faced with something that we've done wrong are we willing to say, yeah, okay, that was, that was wrong, that was sin, but we say something real quickly after that like, but it's not as bad as what, you know, Joe over there is doing. And I'm doing these other things. I'm going to church every week. I'm, I'm you know, helping out around, around the house or whatever. So my sin isn't really that bad. I think we all try to find excuses, ways to minimize our sin, ways to not face the reality of what our sin is. As one pastor puts it, repentance is hard because pridefulness is easy. Stubborn pride is our more natural response than humility and contrition and saying sorry for our sins. So I think this is one of the practical points, one of the ways to apply what this passage is teaching is that the, the best, or at least one of the best and most gospel-centered ways to address pride and to cultivate an attitude of humility is to practice saying you're sorry. I know for me, in human relationships, uh, when I say I'm sorry, it's really hard to do, but there's so much freedom and relief in doing that. And the more I do it, the easier it gets, kind of. It's not, still, it's not easy. But saying sor sorry is, I think, a really good practical place to start in cultivating humility. And saying sorry to uh, people in our human relationships is really good, but I think even better is humbly confessing to the Lord when we try to take pride for, for ourselves, try to take credit, when we sin against him. This is the way we experience the grace and mercy that we've been given through Christ. Repentance is a great antidote to pride, and it's a gospel antidote 
For me, this is all about the gospel. The way I think about it, the gospel is about what Jesus has done for me in Christ when I was totally helpless to do anything on my own. My righteousness couldn't save me. I needed Jesus. And in my need, in my helplessness, he came and he died for me. And he rose again so that I can have new life and righteousness in him. This is the gospel. And when we confess our sins again and again and turn from them, we give up our pride and we experience the joy that comes as a result of relishing in the gospel. Repentance redirects my worship away from myself and turns it back to God. It acknowledges his holiness and it praises him for the, for the grace that he's shown me in Christ. The gospel, I think, is the ultimate display of the Lord showing favor to those who humble themselves before him. Repentance is living out the gospel. It's a way to grow in humility and in worshiping God for who he is and for the good news that we have in Christ. And again, this kind of repentance, this is very hard work. It takes a lot of repeated effort. It takes practice. And it's not just enough to, grow or to know that sin is wrong and that pride is at the root of sin. Again, back to Belshazzar. He knew the dangers of pride. He knew about his father. And he'd be accountable for that knowledge, but it didn't change him. It wasn't enough. His problem was not just a problem of ignorance. He had the information. His problem, it was a problem of arrogance and insolence. When we just have the information, that doesn't mean we'll respond rightly. And I think this is a hard thing for us to grasp because the world around us today, it teaches us that all we need to solve our problems is more education. Just get a little more information and you'll be good. Um, It's kind of the answer to all problems. One illustration that I think of that may or may not be a sin issue in somebody's life, it has to do with being healthy. We think, if only I just could get a little bit more information about nutrition. If only I could discover the perfect diet or um, understand better the benefits of exercise, then I would really get more healthy. I think there can be a lot of truth to that, and learning about nutrition and exercise is is an excellent way to get more healthy. But at least for me, if I'm honest, that's not enough. Just knowing that information isn't going to be enough to get me out of bed early in the morning, early enough to go for a run or go to the gym. It's not enough to make me stop, have, stop from having that extra donut. Um, I need more than just information. And then I think to get even more uh, to, the, to the bottom of things, how many times... Do we think to ourselves, if only I knew what God's will was, then I would live fully for him. Then I would be willing to serve him completely. The problem is I just don't have enough information. I don't know what God wants. I don't think that's really true. I don't think that's how we're really wired. God didn't make us to be just brains on a stick. We're complex beings. We're wired to be creatures of habit. We have minds and hearts. We have an intellect and a will. We have thoughts and desires and emotions. If we're really honest, I think, there are a lot of times when we know what the right thing to do is, but we still don't do it. We continue to dabble in sin. We live pridefully, rejecting what we know God wants for us, what we know is best for us. Knowing is not enough. We must also have a heart change that's brought about by the Holy Spirit who transforms us 
Then we'll have a change in character. Then we'll have a change in behavior. But this is hard. And again, what I'm not saying here, and don't, I don't want you to hear me wrongly, what I'm not saying is that knowledge is not important. Knowledge is certainly important. What we know about God, what we understand about him, and what we believe about him, that impacts the way we live. The Bible tells us all throughout, all throughout Scripture to grow in your knowledge of God. So I'm not saying that knowledge is not important. I'm just saying that knowledge isn't all it takes to grow and to be more like Christ. Like Belshazzar, there are a lot of areas of our life where we know what we should be doing or we know what we shouldn't be doing. Um, <clears throat> we've seen the writing on the wall, maybe literally. Maybe it's an area that you wrote up here on the chalkboard last week and you're finding that this week you're still struggling with that same thing. It wasn't enough to just pinpoint that issue. It wasn't enough even to just write it on the wall. Uh, you're, you're still struggling with it. And this, I think, is where prayer comes in. Along with practicing repentance, practicing a, an attitude of prayer and a, a habit of prayer is one of the best practical ways and a very biblical way to correct the pride in our lives. When we pray and ask God to help us, we're acknowledging that we're help, helpless to help ourselves. Just as we needed Jesus and his death and resurrection to save us, we also need his Holy Spirit to continue living in him and growing in him. We can't do it without him. Prayer is a way of proclaiming to our, our own hearts and to God that God is sovereign, that he is king. As it said in chapter 4, his kingdom is eternal. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. And that includes me. That includes my heart. He can do as he pleases. He is Lord over all. He can change my heart. He can help change the bad attitudes, the bad actions, the bad habits and behaviors that I'm stuck in. The things that I know better, but I still do anyway. When I pray, I acknowledge that he is God and that I'm not and that I need him. Again, it redirects the worship back to him. And in that way, it helps humble our hearts and it addresses the problem of pride. Okay, so we've been in suspense. The writing on the wall. The writing on the wall, Daniel eventually gets around to reading it and interpreting it. And it says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Now, basically, you can see up on your, on your notes and on the slide there, this is basically what it means. It means the king's days are numbered. He's been judged and found wanting, and his punishment is coming quickly. His, uh, it will be, his kingdom, excuse me, will be divided by the Medes and the Persians. Uh, the word for Perez or Parson can mean divided and Persians. So there's kind of several different plays of word, on words going on here. But really, this is a proclamation about mortality, about judgment, and about punishment. This is all coming quickly. Even that very night, uh, Belshazzar's life is going to be taken and his kingdom is going to end. The Babylonians are partying, and even just as they are, this army is coming in to wipe them out. Once again, as Daniel has been communicating with us over and over and over again, God's kingdom is eternal, and earthly kings and earthly kingdoms will all come and go quickly. All of them will come to an end. Ancient kingdoms, modern nations, false religions, worldly, man-made ideologies. And to bring it closer to home, 
our misplaced priorities, our own pride, all the things that we give our time and energy and worship to that go against who God is, these are all going to fall. They're all going to crumble. And we'll fall with them too if we don't humble ourselves and receive forgiveness in Christ. And for those of us who are part of God's kingdom through Christ, there's great hope in this reality, in the truth that God's kingdom will ultimately prevail. And we're on that side. We will prevail with him. Because of Jesus, we're not condemned to face the punishment that our sins deserve. We have the hope of immortal life with him. This is a profoundly joyful thing to think about. And it's also a challenge for us to live in the prayer that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, in all of life. That more and more each day, I would humbly align myself, my life, my thoughts, my will, my job, my parenting, my marriage, everything. That I would align those things with who God is and that I would acknowledge that he is ruler and that I would give him the worship for everything. Let's pray. Lord, we do admit that we're prone to pride, we're prone to wander, we're, pro- we're prone to direct our worship to ourselves and to other objects to take our worship away from you. Would you humble us? Would you do what it takes to root that out of our hearts? We confess it to you, we ask you for help, and we thank you most of all that you have already overcome our sin and pride in, in the cross of Christ, and that by your Holy Spirit, you're growing us to be more like you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.